Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show, we have Art Markman, who is a cognitive scientist, an author, and he is the Vice Provost of Academic Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also one of the hosts of the Two Guys on Your Head radio show and podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today, Art. Matthew, it is great to be here today. I want to start with a foundational question, Art. What does a vice provost of academic affairs at a major university do all day? Sure. So just to orient everybody, since provost isn't a title that most people know about, the provost of a university is basically the chief academic officer. And then the vice provosts have various portfolios within that office, which means a responsibility for coordinating something across campus. Hmm. With academic affairs, what that means is everything that has to do with our teaching and learning mission, whether that's our undergraduate education, our graduate education, or our continuing and professional education. So we spend our time, the team spends its time thinking about how can we serve our students, our learners better? How can we be more innovative in the way that we learn? How can we stay on top of the latest trends? So when generative AI rears its head and everyone starts to worry about what does this mean for education, that falls in our portfolio. How much of your role got upended by the world events that has happened over the last couple of years? How, how did the University of Texas respond and how did your role change when a decent amount of education for at least a period of time went online? Yeah, well, that was a funny thing. Actually, I've been in my current role two and a half years. And prior to that, I was running a think tank on campus called the IC Squared Institute. And in April of 2020, I learned a valuable lesson, which is that when the provost of the university texts you at three o'clock on a Saturday, it's not because they want to make your life easier. And uh, and actually, I got pulled into running the academic working group for COVID planning for UT. Hmm. So it, it upended my life completely in what turned out to be a fascinating way. I mean, I, I ended up having the opportunity to work with several hundred people across campus to try to figure out how to take essentially a small city and open it safely during a pandemic to think about helping faculty to move classes online in a short period of time, how to really help keep the community safe. It was a fascinating time period. And I think it it helped us to realize that we can think boldly and broadly about how we teach and that moving some classes online is great, and that others, not so much, that actually having people together in one place benefits a lot of our education. It's really useful to be able to look people in the eye, to work with them in small groups. You know, if you think about, about, you know, we're, we're actually taping this right now. People won't know this. We're taping this right now on Zoom. One of the problems with Zoom is it doesn't multiplex really well which means only one person can talk at a time, which is not something that works really well in learning environments where you really want to have several people jockeying for position to be able to say the next thing and to have lots of people maybe working on a on, on a board together, mapping something out. So I think we learned a lot both about what we can and can't do effectively in online environments. You have a fascinating line in your LinkedIn profile. It says that your pursuit is to help the world understand the values of the humanities and social and behavioral sciences. Can you share more about why you think the humanities, the behavioral sciences are are so important? 
Yeah. You know, it's funny. A lot of us spend our time worrying about how organizations can function effectively, uh, whether they're businesses or government agencies or nonprofits or military groups. And, you know, we spend a lot of time when we train leaders in those organizations to think about money, to think about how we can work efficiently, how we can, in, in business, perhaps maximize our profitability. And yet, most of the problems that we find ourselves trying to solve on a daily basis are human problems. Hmm. We have people who are not motivated in the way we want them to be motivated, or they don't quite understand what their role is, or we want them to be more proactive in some of the things that they're doing and can't understand why they need to be told to do things that we think should be self-evident that they should be doing. These are all human-centered problems. And if you want to know where the repository for the wealth of knowledge about humanity resides, it resides in the humanities, it resides in the behavioral sciences, it resides in the social sciences, and yet those disciplines are not widely enough studied. But if you go out and read works of great literature, you get insight into the human condition. When you study history, you learn about the leadership successes and failures of the past. When you study philosophy, you get boundaries on the ethics of behavior. When you look at anthropology, you get deep knowledge about the way cultures have addressed core problems. When you study sociology, you get a sense of how group dynamics function. And when, of course, when you study psychology, you get a sense of what it is that motivates individuals. And in the absence of that knowledge, if you're in a leadership role, you are really flying blind. You sit at a, a fascinating intersection where you are, you know, at a in a leadership role at a very influential, large public university. What makes you encouraged about the future leaders that you interact with every day? It is fashionable to say, ah, kids these days, <laughs> right? Which, as far as I can tell, happened from the dawn of time. I have a feeling that you could go back to the savannah in Africa 150,000 years ago, and you had a bunch of, of elders sitting around going, oh, kids these days. I think there's a lot of just wonderful people out there brimming with ideas who really want to learn about the way the world works and to make their contribution. And, and I think that one of the things you get to see at a great university is the the next generation taking its opportunity to learn things in order to to take on the mantle that those of us with with some gray hairs have have had an opportunity to take on. So I really I've always I mean one of the wonderful things about being in universities and this is my 26th year at UT and my my 33rd year teaching somewhere. It, it is always wonderful to to interact with people who have the kind of energy and enthusiasm of most college students. So I it's it, it is it is a privilege to be at a great university and every day I'm just you know I I really do pinch myself that this gets to be my job. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit in the intro, but you've had a variety of different leadership positions. How do you think you've evolved as a leader over the years? You know, I uh, and I also, luckily enough, I spend a lot of time thinking and teaching and writing about leadership. So it's a lot of fun that way as well. I've actually written a weekly column for Fast Company on how to navigate organizations for almost a decade now. So it's interesting to me on a bunch of different levels. I would say that the biggest 
evolution for me is really in in my ability to focus on how to have productive conversations that might otherwise be difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. I think that early on, it is a natural tendency for a lot of us to avoid having difficult conversations, to avoid things that might be confrontational. You know, it's not that we should seek out confrontation. Actually, we should strive to be as collaborative as possible, as often as possible. But inevitably, there are going to be goals that come into conflict. I mean, as soon as you've got two people in a room at the same time, you are guaranteed to have some goals that conflict. And at times, those goal conflicts get to the point where you really need to lay them out on the table and come to a resolution about how to move forward on something. And I think that in the past, I would often wait, kick the can down the road and wait until until it was absolutely crucial to have those conversations. And now I feel like I try to identify those as quickly as possible and to lay it out and not to be afraid of potential conflict. Because if you come into conflict with people with a mindset of being trying to be productive, trying to be collaborative about it, even if a particular conversation ends up being tense, in the long run, it strengthens relationships and it builds trust. You talked a little bit about some of the writing that you do. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you was about a, a book you wrote that was entitled Bring Your Brain to Work. And it talked about using the cognitive sciences to excel at work. Can you pick one or two themes from that book to share with our audience that might help them in their work? One of the things that I write about is is, is the career cycle you know, of really, you know, at any, you know, you're, you're going to have several jobs over the course of your career, even if you work for the same organization. I mean, I've been at, you know, University of Texas for now 25 plus years, and I've had many different jobs in my time here. One of the things that's really important is to spend time wrapping your head around not just the job you have right now, but the next job. And I think that that's something that that can be really difficult to do because often the next job involves things that are uh, skills and knowledge that are very different from whatever it is that you're doing uh, at the moment. Uh, you, you know, so really internalizing not just these are the responsibilities of the work that I have right now, but but asking questions of your supervisors and of people who have jobs that you aspire to that give you an opportunity to understand what does success look like in that role? What are the kinds of things that people who are successful in that role, what are they looking for? What are they looking at? How do they interpret different situations? Listening to the kinds of questions that people ask you, because when people ask you a question, they are telling you something about what they care about. And so if you're in a meeting, for example, with a supervisor or with somebody who has a role you aspire to, when they ask you a question, that question tells you something about this is something that is important for them to know in the role that they have. And then you got to understand why that is. And sometimes that requires doing a little bit of research. Sometimes it requires having conversations with people. But I think that a lot of what cognitive science teaches us about that aspect of the career path is you have to become a good, as my buddy, uh, partner in crime on my podcast says, you have to become a good noticer. Hmm. You, you have to begin to, to pay attention to 
things that might have otherwise slipped through the cracks. And, and that's part of what analyzing the questions and the goals of other people helps you to do. One of the questions that we probably get most frequently from people who listen to the show is, how do your guests organize their time? Or not necessarily in the productivity hacking or brain hacking realm, but is there something you've mentioned that you wear a lot of hats and, and you've worn a lot of hats over your career? Is there something that you found that helps yourself to be more effective, more efficient when it comes to organization or goal setting or anything in that realm? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's it's interesting how a lot of that has changed over the years. You know, one of the things that happens when you do walk up a, a hierarchy of leadership is that you go from having lots of work that you yourself are doing to push projects forward to coordinating activities that enable work to move forward. And so what I found over the years to be helpful is when it was my own work that was pushing projects forward, it was really having good project management kinds of tools around, whether it was just a good set of, of sheets relating to the next jobs that needed mm -hmm. to be done and reminders of who needed to be uh, pushed to do the next thing. Those kinds of tools to make sure that when you get busy, that things don't slip through the cracks. That becomes, I think, really crucial. What's fascinating is that as you move up, it's much more about ensuring that you have regular meetings with the people that you need to talk to. And I think that a lot of people decry meetings. And I think there's certainly a lot of meetings that could have been an email. But I think that there is a level of leadership at which those meetings are crucial to really understand what people are doing. And I think that one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is that they set those meetings, they try to be really efficient. So they set those meetings to be 15 minutes long. And, you know, in 15 minutes, you you barely get the merest update on what's happening. And I actually believe that it's better to spend, you know, a full hour with somebody, you know, in part learning something from my, my clinical colleagues. So, you know, clinical psychologists will tell you that, that, you know, when they see clients, you'll spend a half hour talking with somebody. And then in the 40th minute of the 50 minute hour, the bombshell drops you know, and you wish that they'd led with that, but it just takes a while for people to get around to the thing that they really need to discuss. And I think that giving the time and the space for those conversations to evolve so that you really find out what people are working on, what they're thinking about, potentially what their misconceptions are, is incredibly valuable. And so I find now that that actually, you know, I will come home at the end of the day and my wife will say, you get an awful lot of meetings today. And I'll say, yeah, it was great. <laughs> because in actuality, that's where a lot of the work is really getting done is in having those conversations and in in really trying to understand what the the other people are working on and 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 where I might be able to contribute. So I asked the question that we get most frequently from our audience. I'll ask the question that I enjoy asking the most, which is advice for your younger self. And I'll give you kind of two options. You can give it early in your career, or you can say it's 2020 and you've just gotten a gargantuan task put on your plate. What advice would you give your younger self in, in either or in both of those examples? I think that the main thing that I would tell my younger self is not to plan too carefully. One of the bits of advice I find myself giving a lot and that I wish I'd given to myself earlier was don't edit your life 
in the forward direction. So I, I think a lot of times we we try to plan stuff out. Like this is the path I'm going to take. I'm going to I'm going to do I'm going to take this role and then I'm going to and then I'm going to get this job and and the world turns out to be way more interesting than you think it is. And so your imagination at the present should never limit what you take on. But instead to really be open to the opportunities that arise that may be more interesting than anything you contemplated for yourself. And I think when you edit your life in the forward direction, what you end up doing is not taking paths that don't fit with your vision for yourself. When if you just stay open to, hey, here's a cool thing, let me try that out, you discover that, oh, I'm I, I'm actually well-suited to something I didn't think I would enjoy. I think that there's a real curse to over-planning. Hmm. you got to plan a little. You know, chance favors the pre- the prepared mind after all, but don't close off possibilities just because they were things you hadn't envisioned for yourself. Well, not closing off possibilities is a wonderful spot to kind of close us out today and and shift to the final two questions that I get to ask all of our guests, which are rapid fire in nature. So the first question is this, if you could describe your leadership style, but I just gave you one word, what would that one word be? Uh, Collaborative. And the final rapid fire question is this, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? The best piece of advice I've ever received, I think was get stuff done. Hmm. You can't foresee everything that's going to go wrong with something that you're trying. And so you you just, just finish things. Well, getting stuff done is a wonderful spot to close us out. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Best thing to do would be to find me on LinkedIn. To be honest, I write regularly for Fast Company, for Psychology Today. I post links to my radio show and podcast, Two Guys on Your Head, and uh, everything's out there on LinkedIn. It's probably the best place to find out what I'm up to at any given moment. Perfect. Well, thank you for all of the great insight. Thanks to all of our wonderful listeners for joining us as always. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer. You can find our show on Instagram at Ability Sims, and you can find our organization at ability.com. I want to thank Art again for joining us on this episode. And of course, I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast. This podcast is produced by Ability, a leading provider of award-winning leadership development. You can find us at www.ability.com or by searching for Ability Leadership Development. Make sure to also check out our 12-week fully virtual mini MBA, The Invited MBA, a nights and weekends program that features experiential learning, mentorship, case studies, and networking. Find more information at www.invitedmba.com. Finally, be sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you get our next episode. We want to thank you all for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast.